Hello, everybody. This is Kim Nicolaides back with you with the Advent Christian Voices here uh, back again in uh, Waikiki. Yesterday, I was strolling around the streets of New York, and the week before that, down in Hilton Head, but uh, glad to be back in Honolulu uh, now. Uh, and uh, one of the wonderful things we have here is I can always record, as I did for my radio broadcast, and uh, that keeps me on on my toes for having to always come up with something. Uh, if you've been following along with us uh, in the past, you know that we got up to a really exciting portion of the scripture in uh, the Gospel of Luke, uh, typically known as the uh, genealogy of uh, Jesus. Uh, goes from verses 23 uh, in chapter 3 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 38. I'm not sure if I'm going to take the time to read that, but I would encourage you to do so um, if you don't have the time, or if you do have the time. <laughs> it's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Let me just uh, jump right into that. And, you know, I really appreciate those of you who have taken the time to comment or uh, send me questions or anything that you may have on that. So the passage for today uh, is not one that we frequently find being preached by uh, ministers, uh, primarily who are focused on connecting with our culture, uh, uh, hopefully through some spellbinding message capturing their attention uh, based on uh, the convictions and uh, preoccupations of most people today. So indeed, as we read through this section, uh, we find ourselves asking ourselves the question, you know, why, why is it even in there? Certainly our contemporary society would find that such a list of names to have an, uh, if to have any value is a question, questionable, especially in our quest for meaning and purpose in life. But you know, that reminds me of a story uh, uh, one of my professors at Westminster told me uh, when I was uh, a student there, actually told a bunch of us sitting at a dining room table in our dining facilities uh, a fellow by the name of Vern Hoistress. And he said that he had a friend who was a missionary uh, translator actually working down in Central America, I believe it was, with Wycliffe translators. And he was working on the New Testament, translating into the language of one of the tribes that lived down there. He's finally able to print out and publish the Gospel of Mark and distribute it around for people to read in their own language. Most of these were you know, converted Christians. But he was very disappointed at their lack of interest. And so discouraged as he was, he continued and persisted on to translate the Gospel of Luke. And whenever he got to a portion of scripture, he would try to test it, send it out, see if he got any kind of feedback he would get. And again, he was disappointed with the enthusiasm he had over most of the stuff that he had published so far. But once he got to the genealogy of Luke, believe it or not, he was utterly flabbergasted by the wide-eyed response of every single native who read it. They just couldn't put it down. They just had to tell everyone about it, and they couldn't even stop talking about it with each other for hours on end. And he couldn't understand that. And so, you know, that story conveys two points uh, that I want to get across here. One, of course, is that Dr. Poistress wouldn't have told me that story to begin with unless he understood that in our culture, uh, this portion of scriptures as well as other lists of genealogy frequently found in scripture was 
problematic in terms of the capacity they have for generating much interest or enthusiasm in the readers who share our cultural values. But nonetheless, there was a very good reason for its inclusion in the text, which actually is probably lost in most of those holding the values that we do. Because our values apparently do not uh, resemble the values and the worldview found in the New Testament community as much as those of this uh, tribal community in Central America. So today I want to share with you why that community did appear to have a much greater appreciation for this genealogical list and why it's so crucially important so as to include it in this preeminent place which it holds in scripture at the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus. But first I want to address the age question is the age of Jesus mentioned here in verse 23. It says he was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry, which may seem to be a bit old for some uh, to be just beginning. And that's also from our cultural perspective. But actually, that was the age that was stipulated biblically for the entrance requirements of any priest into the ministry of the priesthood according to the law of Moses. It was also the age that was required, you could say, of God even before Joseph, you remember in the Old Testament, the son of Jacob, was able, or God permitted him, to enter into the ministry of essentially administering and governing over the nation of Egypt. It was also the age, by the way, uh, of David before he was able to assume the role of king over Israel. It was the age of Ezekiel, I believe, before he was entrusted with the ministry of the prophet. As a prophet, I should say, and of course, it was the age of John the Baptist as well before he began his public ministry. So there's an enormous abundance of evidence to suggest that the qualifications biblically for entrance into the office of either prophet, priest, or king in Israel was having attained the age of 30. Like I, say, I myself was 30 years old before I really felt called into the ministry, and because of our culture, uh, requirements to go and find a job before then. I had already gone to a university, got an engineering degree, worked as an engineer, became a professionally certified engineer, and was working as such and uh, very comfortable in my ministry when God called me out of that. I had to forget all that. and Well, I didn't forget it all, but I had to leave that behind in a sense and uh, follow what God was calling me to do. Actually, I'm certain that Jesus could have fulfilled the requirements at an earlier age, but in deference to the law and the word of God, he waited until he met that biblical criteria. He was probably actually closer to 33 based on the extra biblical evidence we have. You know, our culture seems to be more ready to equate maturity with physical stature, apparently, than a deeper and more full emotional, mental, and spiritual development that apparently takes a few more years to achieve. So, as the scripture states, Jesus was growing in stature and wisdom in favor with God and man up until this time. God doesn't send us out into the fields of battle until he's fully prepared us in his own timing, not ours. And it might appear that some people take even longer, as was the case with Moses. He was actually 80 before God called him. I think that may have to do with the task which he was called. So we may assume that God never stops preparing us for greater and greater tasks as we continue to follow and obey him as long as we live. 
Now, in regards to this genealogy, I somewhat facetiously entitled my portion, uh, my message today, the amazing uh, Lucan genealogy. But in case you missed it, uh, we already mentioned that this lineage was actually of Mary and not of Joseph. In Matthew's gospel, we have traced for us the lineage of Joseph. But uh, both of these lineages were necessary in order to have to remove any question about as to the legitimacy of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, since the first requirement for such a claim was that the candidate be directed a direct descendant of King David. Now, David, we know, had many sons and consequently many descendants as well. And being one certainly was not a guarantee by any means that you were the Messiah. But the very first test, nonetheless, that would be made to disqualify anyone who made such a claim, whether it's whether or not they were indeed a legitimate descendant of David. So being, while being one, you could not make you the Messiah, not being one immediately disqualified you or eliminated you from that list of possibilities. And these genealogies were all a matter of public record back then and kept at the official centers of the communities from which your family uh, resided or was listed as residing initially. And that was why Joseph and Mary had to return register for the census in Bethlehem because that was where their family lineages were recorded. And you can be sure that uh, when Jesus did make the claim that he was, or even when any of his disciples claim that he was the Messiah, those records would have been the first recourse anyone who would want to challenge such a claim would have had to rely upon to do so. And as it happens, there were indeed many who did want to challenge that claim. So you can be certain those records were examined thoroughly time and again by no small number of his detractors. And just the fact that this was never once brought up as an issue by anyone should serve as a pretty convincing evidence of the fact that this could not have been used as an issue because everyone by then must have known it was indeed, did indeed have a valid claim to being a true descendant of David. So much so that this was the general title by which he was generally known by the common folk of Israel. We see this numerous times in the Gospels where he is referenced. The first time actually was when the angel Gabriel made his stunning announcement to Mary about the son she would bear, telling her that this would be one of the ways that people would refer to him. He would be called the son of David. And that was, in fact, the title used to get his attention by, for instance, the blind beggars sitting by the wayside when he went up to Jerusalem from Jericho. They wanted to be healed by him. And that was also the title given by even the Syrophoenician Canaanite woman who called upon him in order to plead for mercy in behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. That was the title given to him by the crowds who surrounded him as he descended from Mount Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, as they were singing his praises in anticipation of his promised deliverance on what we now celebrate as Palm Sunday. And that was, you know, what the Apostle Paul referred to him as in his epistle to the Romans. Although Jesus himself was never known to refer to himself by that title. In fact, once he even challenged the scribes for giving him it, or making that appellation, uh, uh, one by which the Messiah would be known. Since the, in the book of Psalms, David himself called him Lord. So how could he be both the son of David and the Lord of David at one and the same time? It's noteworthy that the crowds who heard him were said to have responded to this paradoxical que question, 
Jesus with pleasure, or as if they had found, <coughs> excuse me, the posing of it by him to be somewhat amusing to them. <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that would seem to indicate that they were all well aware, <coughs> excuse me, of the fact that there was no question by these reference scribes <coughs> to the basis of his question. That is, that they, the scribes, despite themselves, had to acknowledge and to admit the truth of the fact that indeed Jesus was a legitimate son <coughs> or descendant of David. And as such, had an all too legitimate claim to the throne of David, at least even from their own perspective. So you might ask, <coughs> why were these genealogies such a big deal in Israel at the time when Jesus was ministering? By the way, in case you're wondering about those Jews who were living in the diaspora, whenever a Jew is born whose family lived at a time uh, of those scattered across the entire empire, not within the region of Israel, as a result of having been displaced earlier, uh, example, by the Babylonians. Well, they still kept their records intact and updated them by sending official, an official certificate for the birth of any child they may have had back to their town uh, of the family clan in Israel to be recorded. And those records were necessary for several reasons. First uh, was due to any claims they may have had upon the land when the Jews first entered the land under the leadership of Joshua. And after they expelled, as much as possible, the, uh, the original inhabitants, they each were assigned lots and parcels according to their family and tribe and so forth. And these divisions were recorded for us uh, of the 12 tribes back in the book of Joshua. But beyond that, of course, they had to divide them up into smaller lots, for individual families, different parcels and so forth, which were supposed to remain within the possession of the descendants of those families indefinitely. Anyone who had any claim to the land would have to be able to back it up by demonstrating their lineage through those records. And that goes for anyone who had any claim to an inheritance as well, which would depend somewhat on where they fit into the family tree. Of course, the firstborn sons would generally be first in line, and certainly any claims in the dynasty of David. So in the case of these genealogical records, uh, they were a matter of much more than just one's curiosity, as may be the case today. Now, in the case of priests who were not given any land inheritance aside from a certain amount of pastures surrounding certain cities available to anyone in the tribe of Levi, they nonetheless had to keep track of their records since without them, they'd be denied the right to even work in the priesthood, as was the case with several peace people returning from the exile we have recorded for us in the books of Nehemiah, I think, or Ezra. Now, if you were to ask, what has happened to all these records since they're no longer available to us? I have to say they were all destroyed in the year 70 AD when the Roman general Titus um, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and burnt down the temple, he killed all the Jews there, pretty much wiped out the nation as known to exist, at least within the environs of that territory, as a judgment of God, as Jesus predicted would happen in response to their rejection of him. And God also allowed these records to be destroyed then because there really was no more need for them on account of the fact that the Messiah had already come. The most important reason for ever having them in the first place was to point to him. And since that had already been done, there's no more purpose, I guess, in that regard at least, for having them. So today, 
were we to expect, as they did then, a reliance upon the very strict conditions necessary to validate one's claim to even being a descendant of Abraham, if that were the case, well, you'd be out of luck. No such thing anymore. Although people did keep private records, those were not considered official and therefore did not hold any real authority. The official records kept intact during the first Babylonian exile, by the way, and which were restored when Israel was allowed to return to the land, were completely destroyed in 70 AD. And with them, any legitimate claim, which Israel even had to exist there, that judgment of God upon the nation of Israel, some would say, was itself an even greater vindication of Jesus' claim to be their legitimate king than was the resurrection of Christ from the grave. Be that as it may, I'd say that the judgment of God upon Israel, which occurred there in 70 AD, which is about the most well-documented event to ever occur in history, in the history of the world, is also a very clear warning of a far greater judgment, which is about to occur, not just on Israel this time, but the entire world for its failure to recognize Jesus as their legitimate king. And just like Israel was to be an example to us then with virtually no one escaping in the hands of their Roman executioners. So it will be when the case when Christ returns, it will mean there'll be no escaping God's judgment, whether Jew or Gentile, no matter who you are or where you live. So when I think of that, I tremble a bit, especially for my own loved ones who don't yet believe or acknowledge Christ. And I pray for them. I expect that may not be the case for you if you have the attention span to listen to my podcast, but I'm sure you know somebody close to you who uh, needs to know Jesus. And uh, as difficult as, as it may be at times to bring up the subject of God with them, I'm sure that difficulty will pale in comparison to the regret anyone would have to carry for failing to do so once uh, the opportunity for doing so is gone. So don't waste those opportunities. Tell those you know about what you believe to be the most utterly irrational risk they seem willing to take at the peril of their own souls. When they could have so much more, not just in assurance of eternal salvation, but in the very real and present power to live a victorious life today, full of meaning and true joy and peace in life. Well, getting back to this genealogy of Mary's lineage, and not Joseph's, as was the case in Matthew. How do we know this? First and foremost, because the two lineages don't correspond with each other. After King David, that is. Before that, they do. But after David, they diverge immediately, except or when they get to Zerubbabel and his father before him, which was occurred during or right after the exile. And then they diverge again. And you might ask, what would account for having those two names in common? There's a couple of possibilities, there's a few possibilities. One is that they were two different people who lived about the same time, coincidentally. I doubt very much that's the case, especially since Zerubbabel, we know, was also mentioned in the book of Zechariah. So it's a very famous character. So what could account for them being in two different lineages? Well, that's a good question. And the best answer I can think of is that uh, they were there by virtue of what the Old Testament refers to as the Levite marriage. In other words, if Neri, that's uh, the father of Sheltiel in the book of Luke, if he was a cousin of Jeconiah, who's the father of Sheltiel in Matthew, okay, and if Jeconiah 
in actuality died without having any sons and also did not have any immediate brothers or at least any brothers willing to raise up for him an offspring to carry on his name, the law of the Levite then said that this duty would fall upon the next closest relative as illustrated in the book of Ruth with Boaz. So if Neri, uh, the father of Sheltel, fit that description and was unmarried, he could then take the widow of Jeconiah to raise up offspring in his cousin Jeconiah's name. And if he did that, although be, and uh, he became thereby the actual father of Shetiao, Shetiao would nonetheless be considered in official Jewish records as being the son of Jeconiah, which is why Matthew lists Jeconiah as his father. Luke, on the other hand, because he's writing primarily to a Gentile, Gentile audience who would not have recognized the legitimacy of the such a law listed instead, his actual father, Neri. Subsequently, Shetiel begot Zerubbabel, who had at least two sons, one named Risa and the other named Abiud. So the lineage of Abiud continued down through Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus, and the lineage of Risa continued down through Eli, the father of Mary, the mother of Jesus. There are also several other reasons we may legitimately assume the lineage of Luke is through Mary. One is that Luke's entire focus is the birth of Christ. Uh, on the, in the birth of Christ, I should say, is on Mary. And Joseph is only mentioned in passing. And that was certainly not the case in Matthew. Another reason is because while in Luke's lineage, it's the only lineage of the two given to be a completely patriarchal one, in Matthew's lineage, we have a mention of four women. But Joseph's name is not really actually included in the lineage of, of Luke, actually. In the English translation, his name appears. But it does so only to say that he was not the real father of Jesus. That is, he was the supposed father. And we know that the Lucan lineage itself does not really begin until we get to Heli, since in the Greek, rather than saying in any of the generational links, as it does in English, the son of. It merely says of. Only in the case of Joseph is the word son even mentioned, but there it's only mentioned to exclude him from being a part of it. So being as Luke is writing to Gentiles, it is strictly patriarchal, and that means it cannot include Mary's name, that is, just fathers and sons. So starting, therefore, from Jesus going up all the way to Adam, instead of starting with Abraham, as it does in Matthew and Goat, it actually goes to Adam and then to God. <clears throat> and since being strictly patriarchal, Mary wasn't included. So it had to start with her father, the grandfather of Jesus, Eli. But even if you really want to, or need to believe that Joseph is a part of the Luke's lineage, you can still do so in an incidental way, and in that he was, in fact, legally also the son of Heli as, he, as a son-in-law through the marriage of uh, his to Mary. But also because Luke was writing primarily to a Gentile audience, which was aware of the claim of Jesus' virgin birth, as well as the ownership of the title of son of David, it's expected that they would want to see the legitimacy of those claims defended through the mother's actual lineage. So Luke dutifully supplies it here. Well, the only names in common between the two lineages are those going from Abraham down to David. 
and then the post-exilic Zerubbabel and Shetiel, uh, the Jews would have known already who the ancestors of Abraham were, going back to Adam, and hence provided no reason for Matthew to include them, as he did here with Luke. While none of the names of those in Luke's lineage or of Jesus subsequently, subsequent, that is, to David's son, Nathan, apart from Zerubbabel, are mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, hence we don't know anything else about him. It's noteworthy, nonetheless, that Mary's father shared the name, uh, as who one could say, in a sense, was the prophet Samuel's adoptive father, Eli. Eli was the high priest at the time of the judges who blessed Hannah at the time she was crying out to God for a child, and who then became pregnant with the great prophet Samuel, who was, in a sense, a very powerful prototype of Christ, whom she led it later dedicated to the Lord, leaving him at the temple, and who, like Mary, was also quoted in Scripture in her, long, in her song of praise, that is, to the Lord for his answers to those prayers. In fact, it was in Hannah's song of praise that the word Messiah first appears in the Bible itself. In any case, all these reasons point to the fact that Luke's lineage of Christ had to be the one that went through Mary's line, while the one in Matthew had to have gone through Joseph's. I hope that point at least becomes crystal clear in your mind. When, why then were these two lineages so important to the Jews living at the time of Jesus? Well, it's because of the value they placed upon the role of their own personal family histories and how those histories serve in providing them each with their own personal identities. That's where their identities came from, in a sense. Unlike our own culture, which values individualism to a far greater degree, the New Testament cultures were far more communal in nature. And this is something we can still see today, but much more so in the Eastern cultures than in Western cultures that have been influenced so much more by the so-called period of Western enlightenment of the 17th and 18th centuries. Well, that pretty much brings us to an end for our time for today. So let's end with a little prayer. Father, we're grateful that you've recorded for us in the pages of your holy word these lineages that reveal how you fulfilled your promises to bring your son into the world because they are very important to the edification of our faith by virtue of the reality they represent of the historical basis of our faith. Help us to appreciate them for the true value the knowledge of them brings to us that we may continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose wonderful name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, this is Kim Nicolaides with Advent Christian Voices, uh, signing off uh, here in Waikiki. God bless you.